0: From the beautiful Art House Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, this is The Pivot, stories of people who've made a change. Welcome to The Pivot. My name is Andrew Osinga. My guest today is my friend, Nathan Tasker. But before I tell you a little bit about Nathan, I just want to say my family went on vacation last week, and that's something we've actually never really done before. Uh, Being a musician, you never really find yourself with uh, a whole lot of extra money to go somewhere, but often people will invite you someplace awesome, and you bring your family, and they hang out, and you work, and uh, we've done that a lot, and that's been great. My family's had all kinds of cool trips, and I have worked in lots of cool places, but it was nice for once to just chill for like a week really never done it before my head is spinning trying to figure out how to get back into real life Uh, but i'm thankful for it so a few of you wrote me kind little notes this week saying hey enjoy your vacation have fun uh just encouraging that time of rest and uh you know what that meant a lot thank you so much that was very kind we did have a good time and i'm really glad we got to do that thank you uh so now nathan tasker i met nathan probably 20 years ago you know, like a lot of relationships, we'd see each other a lot for a little while, and then we'd go years without seeing each other, and then we'd see each other again. But I've always really, really liked Nathan. I've loved his music. I've loved conversation with him. But honestly, in the last year and a half, we've spent a lot more time together. He and his family live in the art house. They run the place. This is where I have my studio. It's where we do this podcast. And um, it's been such a treat to get to know him so much better in the last year and a half, and I just uh honestly i'm sad that i didn't know him this well before Uh, and i've been anxious to get him on the podcast Uh, you want to talk about a guy with a lot of pivots um moving around the world dealing with some just heartbreaking tragedy dealing with health stuff dealing with being on the top of the charts all at the same time honestly i don't know what i would have done in some of the situations that nathan has found himself in but i know he has learned so much and um Talking with him is always just such a treat. He is so thoughtful and wise. Now, he's one of those guys who's read more books than I've even heard of. But when you talk with him, you're not like, oh, this guy's so smart and I'm dumb. You're just like, oh, I'm learning so much right now and this is so fun. And I'm just thrilled I get to have conversations like that with him all the time now. And uh, what a treat that is for me and for you who get to listen to this. But before we get to our conversation with Nathan, I want to share an email that I got uh, recently from a listener named London. He wrote me an email uh, and he said, I never, and that's not hyperbolic, truly never, do stuff like this. However, I'm oddly compelled to tell you what a gift the pivot has been to me. Uh, He goes on to talk about how he traveled and played music during college, played a bunch of young life camps, which is something so dear to my heart, and that that was a a good thing for him. Uh, But after two years on the road, he said, I canceled everything on the calendar, hung it up and moved back to Houston. Now I'm doing what I swore I never would. I work in commercial real estate in one of the most cutthroat markets in the country. There is no room for musings or creativity or emotion or passion or etc. within the walls of my office. I work with high integrity people, great people, but they are bottom line folks, definitely not creatives. The pivot is such a blessing to me because I get to hear from other creatives who sometimes are no longer getting to solely exercise that gifting for the purpose of making a living. When you're in Nashville, I'm sure it's easy to find folks who are struggling with this very thing or feeling like they sold out or etc. In Houston, within my community, I'd struggle to name one other person with the same wrestlings. This isn't a town of musicians. It largely isn't a town of creatives either. That's not an indictment, by the way. I love this place, but it is a fact. When you put a podcast on the net, it's impossible to know the reach of God's intended kindness. Who knows who else this is reaching. For me, though, I download an episode on the way home from work, I live eight miles from my office and it takes me 40 minutes to get home and by the time i'm home to my wife a new baby girl my cup is more filled up for them than before i hit play thank you and keep at it thank you london for that that means so much and i hope you find ways to keep playing music man i hope you find some kind of community there that speaks a little more of your language um i know some musicians in houston so i know they exist i hope i hope you can find some uh, but thank you so much for writing this email and for listening it means a lot So one other thing before we get to the conversation with Nathan. Uh, Maybe you guys have seen the picture that's gone around the internet of the father and the daughter who drowned trying to get to America. Uh, This is not political, what I'm about to say. I want you to know this, this is not political. Clearly something is broken in our world, which we know. And people are willing to risk their lives and their families' lives to find something better. What you think our government needs to do about that, that is totally and reasonably up for debate. Uh, But one thing that is not up for debate is that we, as Christians, are called to care for the orphan and the widow and the poor. And something that I also think we can all agree on is that people wouldn't be trying to escape somewhere if where they're from wasn't so bad. I know I've been looking at these images and reading these stories for the last couple of weeks, and they are heartbreaking, and they make me angry. And uh, I even posted on Facebook the other day, what constructive things can you do? How can we help? I don't always know what to do to help. But I know that there are a bunch of different ways to help solve a problem. And there's, you know, wanting to solve the immediate problem that's right in front of us. But honestly, sometimes the long-term solution that doesn't fix that immediate problem is just as important, maybe more so. And that's why I want to keep talking about Compassion International. I'm not talking about this because they're giving me a bunch of money or something. I'm talking about this because it matters. It matters a lot. People aren't going to try to run away from a home where they are cared about, where they are safe where they're educated and fed, where they are active parts of a thriving community. Compassion International goes into these places that are dangerous, where people aren't educated, they're not fed, they're not taken care of, they're not loved. And they bring the gospel, and they bring health care, they bring the tools and the resources to turn people's lives around, to turn communities around, which makes those places different than they were before. If we want to stop seeing pictures like we're seeing right now on the internet, This is a way that we can help. We can get involved right now. We can send money, $38 a month, which is less than we spent on pizza again tonight. We can write letters to those kids that we sponsor. We can encourage them. We can tell them the truth that they are loved and they are cared about and they can do amazing things and that there is hope and that they are not alone. This is a simple and effective way to change the world and to start solving some of these problems. If this stuff has bothered you, if you want to find a way to get involved, this isn't the only way, but it is a way. Please go to compassion.com slash the pivot. And I do ask you to use that link because that does enable them to support this podcast, which lets us keep doing this. But really, I would love for you to go check out what they're doing. Check out ways that you can be involved. Check out ways that you can help free children and families and communities from poverty in Jesus name. Thank you for letting me talk about this a couple minutes each week. It really means a lot to me, and I believe in it so much. So please go check that out, Compassion.com slash The Pivot. And now, here's my conversation with Nathan Tasker. We have a listening audience. Yep. I think most of them will assume pretty quickly that you are not from the American South. (laughs) Uh, would you tell us a little bit about where you grew up what your
1: childhood was like yeah sure from the from the very deep south uh, <laughs> yeah I I grew up in Sydney Australia and um, and have so many fond memories of growing up there uh, my childhood was pretty normal for a Sydney Australian except that uh, I grew up in a Christian home which wasn't a normal thing uh, where I grew up hmm. um, most of my friends I thought everybody went to church but it turns out I There weren't that many of us going to church. Um, But I I grew up very close to the beach. Um, I have parents that are are both uh, Christian people. My dad has been been in full-time Christian ministry his whole life. Uh, I have two younger sisters. I mean, very, very normal. Um, uh, And then my dad um, got a record by a very famous Australian artist named John Farnham. He's famous for having a song called You're the Voice, which actually Rebecca St. James copied uh, over here on a record. You're the
0: Voice, Try and Understand It, that song?
1: Yes. No way. So when I was in uh, fifth or sixth grade, um, John Farnham, who'd been an artist, his uh, manager mortgaged his house for John to make one final record as like a, let's just see if you can still be an artist kind of record. Yeah. And that record became, I mean... Still is one of the most popular records in Australia, really. Um, and John Farnham has become a household name for us, hmm. obviously, not for you, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I remember getting that record, it was called Whispering Jack, and uh, that record was, I mean, defining in a, in a major way. Whispering for me. Jack
0: sounds like the name of a record that's only big in <laughs> Australia, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's so
1: cruel, man. <laughs> Just a it little is, bit. I, it does in Just, hindsight. Like, even it, as I it, said it, the it, title, I was like, oh no.
0: It sounds like a Crocodile Dundee <laughs> it kind does, of thing, it does. doesn't it? Yeah, that could have been,
1: yeah. Oh, sorry. So it could have been worse. Yeah. <laughs> no, anyway, that's, that's, it was, it was a, but, so then, but then you start yeah. playing music and writing your own songs. Yeah. So I joined my first band when I was in sixth grade. And uh, I remember that um, we played, uh, Jimi Hendrix was it? Uh, uh, it must have been Eric Clapton, uh, Cocaine, you know, that song, which oh, yeah. I, I know is embarrassing to say out loud, but. It was the only song we knew and it really rocked. So in sixth grade, I was playing that in my band and I had no idea what cocaine was. I mean, nobody explained that to me. I just thought it was a really cool lyric. So, um, so that started me playing. I, 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 to be honest, during my high school years, I was playing more classical music, more jazz music. I was a, a double bass major hmm. and, uh, I loved the double bass. I mean, everything for me was about bass Really, um, for my entire high school. And I thought that I would go on. Uh, to eventually join a symphony as a a double bass player. That was my, um, what I imagined would happen. Um, Around grade nine, I found a guitar in our house that my mum had an old classical guitar. um, And I taught myself how to play a Travelling Wilburys song, if you remember the Travelling Wilburys. Uh, And I taught myself to play one of their songs. And it was like, I don't know, a whole new vista opened up in front of me that I'd never experience before uh being able to play my own music you know when i was playing the double bass the double bass sounds better when it's a part of other instruments you know jazz whatever it's very difficult to make it sound you know like scott morville does yeah, he, like yeah. really amazing he's on its kind own. of the only guy that exactly does that. Yeah. exactly you know it's not naturally a, that way but when i was playing the guitar and then singing horribly along to it um it felt like oh i can do this completely on my own. Like, I don't need anyone else around me. It was very freeing, I guess. Um, And so I started uh, playing the guitar. I do have a vivid memory of going on a camp. My dad led a camping ministry like Young Life in Australia. And I remember I was uh, 12 years old and I was on a camp with year 12 people. So they were 18 years old. And uh, there was this giant trampoline at this campsite. And there was one guy surrounded by a group of girls. Playing an acoustic guitar. And there it is. And I thought, boy, <laughs> I got to get me one of those. <laughs> uh, so it took a few years, but yeah. I mean, we all have yeah, re- and that's weird, weird why we reasons for why we get into doing stuff. I know, I know. Yeah, I know.
0: yeah. Uh, but I mean, you had a you had a thriving career as a solo artist in Australia. What yeah. did that
1: look like before you moved over here? It had grown into something that I didn't expect. I started playing uh, music and especially Christian music. I was really inspired by uh, Randy Stonehill. I'd become a, a Christian, even though I grew up in a Christian home, I became a Christian uh, reading Keith Green's book, No Compromise. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That which
0: I think I have that now. you have it on your shelf? Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, it's... Yeah, it's a, a great book. An incredible read. Um, I realized when I was uh, in year 10 that the way I was living my life, I'd fallen into a, a much rougher crowd, and uh, I realized that it wasn't consistent with anything that Jesus did. Taught. Um, and it was through reading that book that it really kind of turned my life around. And I started listening to guys like Randy Stonehill and Mark Hurd and Keith Green and uh, Rich Mullins, you know, and it really uh, got me thinking that I wanted to start playing their songs. And so I started to play old Randy Stonehill songs. I'd play them at my school, at our Christian group, and then they'd let another school's Christian group know that I did this. And so I'd go to that school and do it, you know. Mm. And slowly it just kind of built till I was playing people's churches and then I was playing conferences. Um, at that stage, I'd started to write my own songs. Some of them were horrifically bad. I mean, probably a lot of them were horrifically bad. Um, but it was my attempt to say what was on my heart and from what I was reading. Mm -hmm. So there were times when what Randy Stonehill was saying wasn't what I wanted to say in that moment, you know? And so I started writing songs out of necessity more than anything else there. I had a, a platform. It was a small platform, but I realized that I could say what I wanted to say. Um, and that platform just continued to grow. Uh, I was at university studying philosophy and biblical history and ended up deferring university to keep on playing Mm. music because there was enough work for me to do. And around the age of 22, two really big things happened. The first one was, um, my best friend, uh, who had started to kind of travel with me in the music thing, uh, died in a car accident. And, um, it really, I mean, it to say that it shook my life, I mean, I think about my friend, Greg, he's been, he's been dead over 20 years now. And, um, I would think about him at least, you know, four or five times a week. So, I mean, this is someone who really was very, very dear to me. Um, and when he passed away, I realized, first of all, I had this platform that I hadn't been taken seriously. I I just was an opportunity to play music and rock out and be the guy with the guitar and girls in front of him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, suddenly realized that it could actually be maybe more than that. Maybe there was more at stake in what I was doing. And at the same time, I, uh, had Michael Card's phone number given to me in Nashville. And so the year that I lost my friend, Greg, uh, I flew over to Nashville and, uh, met with Michael Card and that started my journey back and forward between Nashville and, and, uh, Sydney Uh, over many years, over about a a six or seven year period, which I think is when we first met. Yeah. uh, A long time ago. A long time ago. Uh, And then through that travels, basically I came over to America to to see Michael Card originally. Um, And in that same week, I ended up meeting uh, Charlie Peacock. Um, I sat in Charlie Peacock's living room and I remember sitting down with him just saying, I... I'm 22 years old. I strap on a guitar. Everything I say to everyone in front of me, they take as gospel. And I'm really feeling the weight of that. Like it's really stressing me out. Mm. Um, cause you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I wanted someone to help guide me, mentor me. And that started a a very deep friendship with Charlie. Started a friendship with Michael Card. Um, I actually was rooming with Russ Ramsey, who I know. we That is such a trip. 20 years ago. Uh, These people who started to sow into my life um, and really showed me what it looked like to be not only uh, a Christian man, and I definitely saw that in in these older guys, uh, but also what it meant to be um, a Christian who really loved being involved in the arts, being involved in creative endeavors, you know, um, and to do it faithfully and to do it well. And uh, they've continued to be those guys for me. So yeah, 22 man was a real massive turning point. Uh, in my life. So everything has kind of come out of that, really. Hmm. Yeah. So for a while, you were
0: traveling back and forth. Did I was. You, did you have a, you were kind of rooming here, sort of? Yeah,
1: I was. I was living with uh, some very dear friends, um, Wes and Linda Yoda, uh, who um, live not far from where we are right now. Um, I was living in their basement and I'd come over in summer and I'd stay in their basement mm-hmm. and I'd go to Empty Hands Fellowship, which was a group that Mike Card was a part of go to Christ Community Church. Kevin Twitt was the college pastor that I would sit under. And I didn't do any music. I didn't songwrite. I didn't play any shows. I'd go back to Australia and do 150, 200 dates a year. And then I'd come over here and I would, you know, no one knew what I did. Um, Yeah, we all knew that you played music in Australia. Yeah. But but we'd never seen you play. Exactly. And, And I'd never given out a CD or anything like that. And I think part of it was I... I really wanted, and still want, that whenever my time in Nashville ends, uh, I've been here 13 years full time now. But whenever it ends, I hope that I have a lot of friends here, and not just business acquaintances. And I think, um, in in a town like Nashville, it takes a lot of intentionality to pursue friendship. Uh, I actually think it's easier to pursue business acquaintances than it is to pursue genuine friendship. And that was the jumping off point for me when i started visiting here and i hope that it's continued on from that um that that's still been i guess the major driving force behind what we do what i do here you know yeah. what it means to live in nashville so that's beautiful yeah. and i
0: see you living that out i mean that no
1: uh-huh. oh, well to varying degrees <laughs> so 13 years ago you moved here mm. and you moved here with cassie right you guys yep. you guys yep. we had just been married uh, okay. for... We we had been married three months. We jumped on a plane, and I spent three months uh, tracking a record with Charlie Peacock. Um, we'd had an album before that uh, go really well in Australia, surprisingly well, which enabled us to then come over here to produce the record. and And Charlie produced that that record for me. Went back to Australia, and that same year, the the I was the most played artist on Christian radio in Australia, and had the most played song on Christian radio in Australia. And packed up everything and moved to Nashville, Tennessee.
0: Why? Yeah. I, oh, why would man. you leave when it was happening? I know. Happening?
1: I know. And and, Andy, to be honest, man, I, there are times when I, I wonder why, or if we left too early, because hmm. um, I do think that we, we had done a lot of things that I, I had never hoped to do, you know. Just doors had opened and we walked through them, and and good things had happened, and uh, but I don't think I ever felt as though. Let me phrase it this way: I wonder if it would have been better to have stayed a little bit longer, and continue to work on my craft there, continue to come and visit America. Um, in hindsight, it would have been nice to spend more time with um, family, especially my wife's dad, who passed away from a, a brain tumor not too long after we moved here. Um, but hindsight is 2020, you know. Yeah. And I look at the journey, and I think that it, my Australian work kind of got stunted a little bit by leaving it behind so soon. I mean, we released another couple of records to Australia and the one after this this one that had uh did better than the other one even though I wasn't living there. So I, I don't know. It just I mean, you know, uh you kind of you follow the path that yeah. you kind of can see and you feel like God is leading you down. No guarantees there aren't any regrets when you're moving down that path, but you know, you still have some element of trust that it's the right path to be on. Hmm. So,
0: so what was it that drew you guys here?
1: Oh yeah, when there was so much happening there. Oh, I mean, community. You know, like you. You know, we we hang out and you you make music and you you do your podcast and you and you do everything at such a high level and you pursue truth and I didn't have a lot of community like that in Australia. I didn't have Christian friends who were in the creative arts. You know, it was. Hmm. much smaller. We're a much smaller country. Um, you know, there was very few of us who were making a full-time living out of doing art like this. Um, so I want a community and then I really want mentors. I want people that were further down the road who I could go, I want to be like that when I grow up, you know, Mm. and in Australia, and this is not a negative thing, by the way, it might sound that way, but a lot of people who do music in Australia, especially music that would be Um, Christian or obviously Christian, uh, they kind of do it in their 20s, then they go to Bible college and they become a senior minister in a church somewhere in Australia. And that is just a well-worn path and and there's something beautiful about that. It wasn't the path that I wanted to be on. Um, I I wanted to be in my 40s and still be making music and still thinking about the creative arts and the imagination, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think that was just my calling. And I also... I'm very itinerant. I think anyone who's been on the road knows that feeling of it's really hard to stay in one place, uh, to see the same people every week in a church. (laughs) I still, I I find that really hard, man. Like, um, it's probably, if I could change one thing about myself, it'd be that for sure. I'd love to change that uh, to be more consistent with a small community of people in a church family. But the itinerant lifestyle just really appeals to me. So the idea of pastoring a church would be not very good for me. Yeah. Or good for the people that were a part of that church is probably more important. Where did yeah. he go? Yeah. Exactly. He's <laughs> like, he's never here. He comes like once every two months. Yeah. So, so you guys moved here. Yeah. Your career. Yeah. It's in Australia.
0: What did you spend your time doing?
1: Yeah. My wife and I bought a Chevy conversion van and we started playing gigs in America and we played everywhere. Um, We played some really great places. We played some really, really difficult places that, um, that weren't great. And to be honest, when I came off the road, as far as just traveling as a solo artist in a touring van, um, being able to, to not have to take any opportunity was a really big relief for Cassie and I. Yeah. The one thing I will say is that the six years that we traveled in a touring van was a lot of shared experience Mm to us and things happened. Like, what we got to experience together, I think God was, in hindsight, using so that when we would face difficulty, we were very close together. Like, Mm. all that shared experience, all that time together had really knit us together um, and prepared us, I think, for some difficult things that we faced. Um, So that was an amazing time. It was a weird time. You know, we were making no money. We were... Out in a van all the time, you know, and we were playing some really freaky places, and yeah it was it was bizarre, man, like really weird um and then can, would you just yeah we t- can have it tell us yeah. one of the weird experiences from that oh, season, well, I hope that they're not listening um <laughs> i I think one of the last gigs I ever played I played this this church and it was in a uh a very 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 small town um and I think we were in. Kentucky thing because we could drive to it I know that like we drove and then we were meant to stay overnight but after the experience of the church we drove all the way back home that <laughs> night we just
0: a <laughs> you, know yeah, you know those <laughs> man
1: but um the the, the pastor who I, I, I didn't get to know very well and um he was he was dressed in like a white cowboy outfit with a white hat and he obviously really loved playing music at his church because he had a whole bunch of white guitars everything was white um, you know, hanging on the wall on this very, very small building that was very, very low. I remember standing on the stage and thinking, if I like stand on my tippy toes, my head would touch the roof. Right. You know? Yeah. And I mean, Hey, every, every church yeah. is different, right? So I'm not, but I remember at one point in the night, um, I said something about Jesus dying on the cross, you know, to forgive our sins. And, um, and someone in the front row was like, I think they yelled at something like, uh, enough of that already, you know, like move on kind of thing when I was talking about the cross. And I remember just this guttural instinct feeling so um, disappointed, probably angry, Hmm. maybe righteous anger in that moment. Um, That's something that's so central to my understanding of what it means to follow Jesus and to know him, uh, had been belittled in a church, you know, just felt very, very strange. And so I remember we just I mean, got, on the, got in the car and, and drive home. That that was like a... We still talk about the white cowboy, you know, church, that's... church pastor, because uh, it reminds us of like, I don't have to do that anymore. And that's kind of really good. It was weird. Yeah. But I've had everything, man. You know, the ones where the pastor calls you up and they're like, can you play some music while we, you know, do something else? Yeah. And I'm like, sure. And then like 30 minutes later, there's people... Being pushed over chairs and, and you're like oh, <laughs> you're what like, is happening? I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah. you know, it's all part of the course, man. Wouldn't trade any of it, but wowzers. And and the good thing is you had Cassie there with you. Like mm.
0: if you have someone there with yep. you, yep. you can be like, this is crazy, right? You can make exactly. eye contact yep. and be like, yep. we are normal. Yeah, this is not. Yeah, yeah. It's when you're by yourself. Yep. And and the crazy is happening and yep. you're looking around like.
1: Where am Where, I? Yeah. Who am I? I exactly. What is the reason yeah, for my yeah. existence? <laughs> like, it, yeah, yeah. Oh. That, that deeper questioning. I must admit, is really <laughs> the good thing is that we rang Cassie's dad, who's who's such an important part of our lives. Um, and I remember he just loved those stories. He just he saw the funny side of them, which enabled us to see the funny side of it as well. And uh, and that's that's a real gift, man. We really miss him because mm. of that. But uh, uh, I remember us driving home and feeling really kind of that. Like, what are we doing? Why are we getting booked in these places? How come this is happening to us, you know? And then we rang Cassie's dad and he just thought it was the funniest thing in the world that someone would be <laughs> dressed in white with a white cowboy hat and, you know, and, and it made us like go, ah, oh. you know, it's not a massive deal at all. This is not, in the big scheme of things, this is not, this is a blip,
0: you know? Oh, that's so good. Yeah. I would love to ask about the twins. Yeah.
1: Because that happened
0: probably around... That same time that you guys were coming off the road? Yeah. Right? Yeah, it
1: did. Yeah. 2010, 2011 are a bit of a blur, but um, uh, 2010, um, we were still touring together. And to be honest, we had, it was a really great year music-wise for me. I'd, I'd finished another record uh, with Charlie Peacock and Jason Ingram had produced part of it. And it was really, felt really complete. Um, we'd shopped it around and found a home where Entertainment One, and so we'd signed a deal with them. But it happened to coincide with Cassie's dad getting news that at the age of 59 he had a brain tumor that was inoperable and um, and he w- he is s- so important to us and to our to Cassie's life obviously but to mine as well I mean and uh, I remember uh, feeling our, our world was getting rocked even as these positive things were happening in 2011 May 2011 I had the CD release of my record called home May 16. We got the news that Cassie's dad had died May 15. Oh, wow. We were actually traveling back from London where I just played at a conference at the Royal Albert Hall. I mean, all these things that I ticked off as like, wow, this is amazing. You know, I can't believe things are going this well, you know. And, um, and so we came back, did the CD release show and the next day flew to Australia in order to be with family and, uh, and go to his funeral. And, and, uh, so during the cycle of that record, I disappeared kind of the most important part of releasing an album in at least back then you know uh, to be with family when we went back to Australia the night before his funeral we had found out that Cassie was pregnant with twins so we shared the this night information. before the funeral yeah so we shared this information with the family um, we'd found out a little bit earlier than that but we shared it that night because I think she was about uh, 13 weeks along so we felt confident that like okay we can share this and around when she was Uh, 22 weeks pregnant Um, Cassie's water broke and we ended up in uh, Baptist Hospital here and uh, we were told immediately that we would lose both twins and that was a really difficult thing to experience in that moment but then we had this really lovely uh, doctor who came who was an expert uh, um, who uh, told us that we're going to do bed rest and see if we can allow the twins to at least get further along and then hopefully they can survive And so that started a a bed rest period at at Baptist Hospital. I remember I I blogged about it, you know, and I think I felt really optimistic. I felt like, no, no, no. I mean, the really bad news we got that we were going to lose them. And then this positive news, like, I fully expect that we're going to, this is all going to be okay, you know. And so for two weeks, we were on bed rest. And it was a really stressful two weeks, you know, because you're constantly aware of heartbeats and they're constantly... Um, afraid, you know, of what's going on with the little people. But then two weeks in, uh, one night Cassie went into labor and, and ended up giving birth to a little girl who arrived first and she was born stillborn. And then they hoped that the little boy uh, would stay inside and, and might be able to continue because uh, his sack hadn't hadn't ruptured. But then about three hours later, she went into labor again and gave birth to a little boy and he was alive when he was born and so he died um, shortly after that. And... Um, I remember the 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 feeling. If I, you know, lots and lots of feelings were felt, um, but I remember them handing the twins to us to hold, you know, and they dressed them like little babies, you know. Mm. And I remember that feeling of this is what it feels like to be a dad. And I don't unfeel that. Like a line has been crossed in this moment, and and I think when I look back at that period of time, that was probably the most disconcerting part as you're dealing with grief and loss and all those things. And I know, I know, I know that, um, your listeners, Andy and the people you've had on your podcast, I, I know that they, that we all have stories of loss and, and some of them are are so much more horrific and tragic than what Cassie and I experienced. But I mean, loss is also a very relative thing as well. So for us in that moment, it was, it was massively, um, I think because we'd lost her dad, three months earlier and then had this, it just felt like, you know, I wrote a song with Andy Gullohorn called Nowhere to be Found and we talk about kind of God kicking you when you're down. Like you've already fallen through the floor and then it feels as though there's like one last boot to kind of really rub it in, you know. Uh, So that, that season was, um, and still is, you know, I think you carry that kind of grief with you, at least this side of heaven, you know. Yeah. Um, That season was a really, Uh, traumatic one. I'm really thankful. I think that God was very kind to us in that uh, Cassie and I um, moved probably closer together through that rather than it driving us apart. And I know it really can go either way in in tragedy and and loss and grief. It caused me to face a lot of things that I hadn't faced before. I started reading a lot about lament and and grief because I really wanted to have a sense of, does God have anything to say into this? because you know, if he's neutral or even you know worse than it, like ambivalent or then I, I don't know if that's if that's going to be a, a deep enough and a robust enough answer for me i look back and think i'm grateful for that season to go deeper into things that i otherwise wouldn't have i think that a lot of my life has been lived out of that moment as well you yeah. um, things feel more more temporal when you're that close to Loss and grief, very sad time. Yeah. yeah. And you were here. Yeah. Away from family. And my mother-in-law very kindly came over. And so she was here when we lost the twins. And, uh, and that was, that was really good. I know that there were times where she felt hurt, um, within that, which was really hard. And the way I explained it to her is I've never experienced loss like this before. So I'm really sorry for hurting you in not sharing what we should or sharing mm-hmm. too much. You know, this is so very new, uh, to me. Um, but it was great having her here. But we were we were away from family. We really missed Cassie's dad. I mean, that was probably one of the major, major ones. And you're still grieving that. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. It was, a, it, was it was a blur. A, it's hard to know. Yeah. Right. It's what just we a, were grieving. You know what I mean? It was, it was, it was almost, it was almost too much. But I'm grateful for for people like, uh, like when I wrote wrote with Andy, especially we wrote a, a few songs together for, for a record and um. A record that ironically didn't sell very well. It's funny how those topics don't necessarily uh, resonate at a really deep level at radio. Um, but I'm really grateful because it was through those experiences that I, I understood a little bit more of what I had gone through and perhaps started to heal a little bit as well. And, um, and that was a real, a, a real privilege to have others helping to do that for me you know? Yeah. Um, So that was really, and and hopefully those songs have been helpful for other people as well. You know, I get, I do get emails from, from people who listen to that record. And for some reason that record has come to them at the right time in their life or their experience or their grief or their lament, whatever. And I I know, especially when I listen to like your record, the painted desert, and I hear themes in that, that I go, Oh, I resonate deeply with those themes because I feel as though you're a kindred spirit on the journey, you know? and i think that uh the record that i did um with those songs on it has become that for other people as well and and i'm i'm grateful for that i really yeah, yeah. don't you know that probably means more to me than it sold mm-hmm. super well you know yeah
0: you said a, a couple minutes ago in that that a line has been crossed like you're mm. you're not the same person after that mm. even if 6 months later you kind of your days look the same
1: yeah how would you
0: define, or can you define, sort of, yeah.
1: the, sort of the person, the ways that you changed? Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, here's, here's some negative ways that I changed. Because I actually think that's worth... I, I don't want to assume that every change is great, do you know what I mean, that happens <laughs> sure. to us. And, uh, and I feel as though, like, if I was going to write a book on it, I'd only be able to write about the positive changes, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. Whereas I, I do think one of the things that happened to me is that I became less tolerant of people who hadn't experienced what I'd experienced. And that was probably the immediate response. And, um, and on one level, I think it makes sense. Yeah, it's a fair statement, but at the very deep level, um, it's quite a, it's quite a horrible way to be around people. Um, and I think I, I slipped into that pretty quickly. I felt very much like, to be honest, going around everyday tasks, like you were saying, your day looks the same you're doing those things with other people as well. And inside there is this voice crying out, do you have any idea what Mm. I've been through? And and I think it's a cry of desperation and sometimes a cry of pride as well, you know, that somehow I have a deeper wisdom because I've been through this, you know? Mm. Um, But yeah, I, I think that that was a, that was definitely a negative. I think becoming less tolerant, I think a positive would be that I started to see the value of community um, I really think that when, when you experience pain and uh, and grief, uh, one of the things that really makes sense to be a part of the body of Christ is in those moments, more than in the really happy moments that you want to share with people, those those painful moments when people can carry that weight for you. There's that great Bonhoeffer quote, you know, that Christ on the lips of my brother is often stronger than the Christ in my own heart. Hmm. And man, I, I'd read that quote. I love Bonhoeffer. I'd read that quote and I had no idea what that quote meant until Mm. I, standing in church, listening to people sing songs that I'm like, I don't know if I can sing this right now. And I kind of need you to believe for me. You know, I need you to to carry me because I I can't do it right now. I think those kind of experiences and that, yeah, that was just a reality that I'm really grateful I got to experience, even in the midst of the the pain of that time, you know. Mm. But boy, I mean, you have to lean into it. I'm not saying it's easy by the way to lean into community at times like that. That can be the hardest time, you know? Yeah. Because there's like a there's a time period where people will talk to you about grief that you're going through, and then like your time's up. And even though your time of grief is continuing on, time's up for other people to engage with it, if that makes sense, you know, mm. and you know, you move on. You move on with life. So I, I remember that feeling and even those times of leaning into community is like, okay. Have to give a remembering. I can't remember. Was it Scott Rowley who used to say that first rule of community is showing up, and uh, hmm. that that was as basic as I got for a period of time during that's our church a, life. That's a good line, just, man. I know that that works. Pretty, yeah, that goes a lot of levels. It, it it does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. We we certainly experienced it on that on that hmm. particular level. So, well, now you guys have. Yeah, there are a few children running around here.
0: There are. There are. They're often bugging you, actually. they <laughs> Tapping it. on your window. And, I yeah. love it because I live in Tennessee. Yeah. And your children live in Tennessee and they're yeah. <laughs> born here, but they have Australian accents. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the greatest thing in the world to be That's... working and turn around and there's an Australian toddler just that wants to talk. Yeah. It's yeah. the greatest thing that happens.
1: I'm so pleased that you see it that way because <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how much work you get done with our little family oh, so buzzing fantastic. around. But, uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, let's, let's, we'll get, let's get to that later. Okay. Um, I would love to talk about like where we are right now. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and could you paint a picture for us of like what life
1: looks like for you right now? Yeah. And then let's
0: talk about sort of how this happened.
1: Yeah, life, life for me like right now, we live in, in Bellevue at the Art House, which is where we're recording this podcast right now. And my wife and I are co-directors of the Art House, which is a nonprofit that was set up by Charlie Peacock and his wife, Andy Ashworth. Over 25 years ago now, I think it's around 27 years ago, the art house was created. And it was originally established to be a place that helped to cultivate creative community for the common good, uh, a place to gather, a place to go deep on issues, specifically issues around the creative arts, imagination, how that relates to the life of someone who would call themselves a Christ follower, semi-modelled on the Libri uh, version in so much as wanting some kind of rigorous or robust theological discussion to happen, or at least surrounding what's happening, I guess, Yeah. better way to put it. But because so much of the art house was also built around Charlie and Andy's life here, and Charlie's work here as a record producer, a lot of what happened was very music-centric during those 25 years. You know, when I said before that I sat down with Charlie Peacock in his living room, that's now my living room. And so that's a very surreal thing to think. 20 years ago, I sat down and said, what should I do with my life? And... Now I'm living in, the, in that home and I've recorded records here and this place and the art house has meant a lot to me and to Cassie over, over the years, you know, that we were visiting Nashville back and forth, uh, at least for me. And so now we, we help to direct that vision, try and carry on that legacy. I wouldn't pretend that we in any way are filling shoes of Charlie or Andy. They are both, I think, pioneers within thinking through these things. I think There was a small group of people 25 years ago that were really starting to contemplate, carry on the work of like Hans Ruckmarker and guys like that, Um, whether it's Steve Taylor or um, Marco Fujimura or whether it's, you know, Charlie, guys who really were trying to work out what does it mean to be a creative artist? What does it mean to still be faithful to Jesus, you know? So I hope that this house is continuing to do that in some way, shape, or form. Certainly, knowing that you exist in, in this room here is a really obvious way that, that I think the artist is still doing such great work, you know, um, great thinking, um, great communicating. So we're, we're helping to steward that. Uh, at the same time, I, I'm a touring artist as well and a touring speaker. And so, uh, the last five years I've spent the bulk of my time out with Michael W. Smith opening for him and then also speaking on behalf of Compassion International for him as well. Yeah. And so, uh, my life is... Sixty nights I'm not here. The rest of my time I'm here, running interference with the three little people that we have now, which is the greatest joy. If, if I could be here the whole time doing that, I would. <laughs> um, I love being around them. So, but you—you'll even travel for months at a time, obviously back to Australia. Cause we you, will. that's not
0: a—you don't—you know—drive over for dinner. No. To Australia? No, no. So you guys
1: have to move and do that. But you also spend a lot of time like in the UK. We do, yeah. Yeah, we've had the the privilege of, I mean, Australia is a no-brainer because that's where all the family is still. My wife's from Adelaide. I'm from Sydney, and so we have family in both of those parts of Australia. And so we try and go back there at least once a year, sometimes twice a year if we're really lucky. Um, We also spend a lot of time in the UK. Uh, I've got a lot of very dear friends at a church called All Souls Langham Place, which is most famous, I think, for having John Stott as their... Uh, one of their pastors, who is obviously an incredible theologian, amazing, uh, was an amazing man. I've had the privilege of going over there and also being on staff there to help establish new congregations and help with music directing within a contemporary kind of worship style, and that's been incredibly life-giving. You know, Nashville, we live in the Bible Belt. It's a it's a very different type of experience as a Christian compared to what our brothers and sisters in Australia or in the UK or Western Europe, and not even mentioning places like China or Africa, um, have right now. I feel very, and my wife does as well, very filled up being around Christians in those parts of the world who are really living in post-Christian societies that have been post-Christian for decades. You know, It's very deeply encouraging to meet people who might not get a job promotion because people at work know they're Christian. And yet they faithfully follow Jesus in that. You know, we'll just feel very grateful to have brothers and sisters like that around the world. And hopefully it inspires the work that we do at the Art House as well, Uh, either as we continue to move into post-Christian society, ways of thinking within America, which has already happened on the coasts, but is moving inward. And we're experiencing that in Nashville now. You know, the gospel has a lot of, as it does in every environment, has a lot of great things to say to those who live in a post-Christian world. So I'm excited when I get to travel to those parts of the world because I get to come back here and let it influence and shape the work that we do at the Art House and the work I even do on the road as well. So,
0: Yeah. Hmm. You travel a lot and speak with compassion. Hmm.
1: And I'd love to hear
0: a little bit about why you have been drawn to that and yeah. sort of, and, and what that role does it look like for you, um, but why you would be willing to get on a bus and leave your family to go on tour and that's often not even play music yeah like what,
1: what what drives that before i sound like i you know have such pure motives for what i do let me tell you how i became a compassion sponsor uh when i was 22 just before i i came over to america for the first time i lived in a house with three other guys and one night i saw an advertisement on a tv uh for a child sponsorship organization and i had a friend i was living with his name was james cooper A great, great man, much more spiritual and a deeper faith than I had. And and I was aware of it. And so I thought, I'll show James how good a Christian I am. And so I turned to him and said, you know what? I think I should sponsor a child. I had no intention of sponsoring a child. I just wanted him to think that I was like, you know, I was really (laughs) maturing (laughs) as a Christian. (laughs) So that night, while I was asleep in my bed, he uh, crept into my room and used my credit card to sponsor a child through confession Uh, which I had no idea about. Like, honestly, had no idea about until two weeks later, um, when I received the welcome pack, and it said, "You've sponsored Edgar from Guatemala," and I had no idea who Edgar was, and I had no idea where Guatemala was, which is even more embarrassing. Uh, but, but that was my that was my my way in to compassion. And for the first few years, I was I was the quintessential uh, terrible compassion sponsor, in that Edgar would write me letters, and and I didn't write anything back. You know, I just thought to myself, "Hey." he's getting his, whatever it was, $38 a, a month. You know, he's getting food and clothing and he's going to school and he's learning about Jesus. What more can I do? You know, kind of thing. And then, uh, when I started dating my wife, Cassie, uh, she found these letters from Edgar and she said, uh, have you been writing back to this young man? You know, he would have been at that stage. He was probably, you know, uh, 11 years old. And, um, I said, no, I mean, I give him, you know, the money to compassion. I mean, and I doing enough? I'm know? just amazed that, first of all, I'm amazed that you kept it going. After, yeah. Well, like, to be honest, back then, Andy, but I, I mean, man, I matured so late in life. I don't think I had any idea of like, how would I stop this? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like the concept of like, pick up a phone, cancel, was just so far beyond, like, that just sounded like so much work. So much like, work. And, and because it was on my <laughs> credit card, I mean, back then I was not as fiscally responsible as I am now. And I probably was like, oh, "I don't see that money. It's not like it's coming out of my bank account." <laughs> I was like, "You know what I mean?" <laughs> yeah, it's so embarrassing. It's not I mean, coming oh, out of really... my actual pocket. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so, anyway, it was so, just yeah. it was just easier to sponsor. <laughs> that, that's what it worked out. Yeah. But uh, anyway, Cassie, Cassie started making me write letters to Edgar, which is one of the reasons why I love my wife so much. Um, and and I started to hear even more delightful things about how this young man, you know, had been growing in his understanding of who Jesus is in his desire for his future, what he would love to hope and dream to do. It all kind of culminated with Cassie and I going to Guatemala to meet with Edgar and getting to see him face to face when he was 13 years old. And, uh, and we've been writing for, well, I've been a sponsor for eight years. We've probably been writing for four years, you know, three years. Um, I remember walking into his, he lives in like a wooden shack. Um, I mean, I'd never been in the developing world before. Uh, it was incredibly confronting, uh, to see the level of poverty. I mean, Mm. we talk about poverty in America. We talk about it in Australia. Um, these kids and their families live in extreme poverty, which is a completely other thing, not something that we see in America. It's not something we see in Australia. And I had certainly never seen it before. So in this barren wooden cabin, um, with no running water, no electricity, uh, a plank of wood that they all sleep on together at nighttime, there on the wall was a framed photo of Cassie and I. Cassie had sent them a picture at some point And, and that was the only thing that would come close to be, I mean, a decoration, you know, in there. Wow. And, and uh, man, it was, it was the most humbling moment. Um, and then talking with Edgar, talking with Edgar's mom, uh, Edgar became a Christian through Compassion. His whole family became Christians because they saw what was happening through compassion through this local church and thought they should go and have a look at that local church. They heard the gospel. They became followers of Jesus. And seeing that impact from, you know, my friend who, you know, rang up and sponsored it while I was asleep. I mean... That's incredible. It wasn't anything that I thought was possible, you know. Um, But God graciously did what he promises to do, you know. Um, And so that really... I mean, compassion has been important to me. Uh, I became a compassion advocate in Australia just before I moved to America. So when I moved to America, every time that we were driving around in our Chevy conversion van, I'd speak about compassion at events as well. And I think part of it was I really wanted for what we do together as a church when we meet, especially if I was doing worship songs or corporate songs, even singing my own um, songs, I didn't necessarily want people just to have a feeling about the gospel, but I also wanted them to have an opportunity to, to act out the beauty of the gospel as well. And, and to this day, there are a lot of great um, nonprofits uh, around the world. Compassion I've been drawn to because of the holistic nature of the way they care for children. It isn't just food. It isn't just uh, clean water. It isn't just an education, but it all happens through a local church. And so every single child sponsored through Compassion are welcomed into a local church community where they're loved, and their families end up being loved. And these kids are becoming Christians, and they're becoming Christians at a remarkable rate. Um, A year ago, I remember the statistic was every four minutes, a child sponsored through Compassion was giving their lives to Jesus. That's like 150,000 children a year, right? And I've been racking my brain to try and think of another organization that comes even close To not just conversions, because that's one thing, but kids who are becoming Christians who are now being discipled. They've been taught the Bible. They're still a part of Christian community. They're growing up to become leaders within their communities. I mean, it's hard to think of another organization as having that kind of impact in the developing world right now. It's pretty remarkable. Anywhere. Anywhere. I know. And so every night, um, and you're right, sometimes it is hard to be almost every night it's hard to be away from family, but to get up in front of a group of people and, um, share about the work of compassion and connect it to, uh, a God of compassion, a God of loving kindness to connect those things to what it means to be created in God's image, which I think brings dignity to every human, even our enemies, you know, which is where I think Jesus so radically tells us to, you know, pray for our enemies. Those who persecute us, love them. Um, but then also to see it as a as a matter of justice as well, you know, our, our God uh, is is obviously a, a God of justice. You know, the the narrative of the the Bible is so interwoven with uh, the pursuit of justice, even to the extent that the death of Jesus on the cross for us is a, is a justice issue as much as it's a loving issue, right? To see that the heartbeat of God within the Old Testament so often resonates around. Pursuing justice on behalf of what Nicholas Waltersdorf calls the quartet of the vulnerable, which I think is like the orphan, the widow, the the poor, and the immigrant. Hmm. That that's the heartbeat of God, and you don't see that rescinded in the New Testament. God no longer cares about that stuff. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, I think that subtly at, at points, but you know, within the, the life of Jesus, you see that, in you see oh, that yeah. that desire for justice in, in flesh, especially for that group, and uh, and compassion deals with the quartet of the vulnerable and I want to be a part of that I want to be a part of that more and more in life I think um, as I get older trying to think about what really matters that that I think really matters and I think it should matter to the church and it should matter to every Christian I think it should matter when we do politics and when we pick a church and when we read books and study the Bible I mean I, I really think that should be if that isn't a part of what it means to follow Christ for us, then we probably really need to have a think about what do we think it means to follow Jesus. Yeah. And I've learned that because of Edgar. <laughs> hmm. uh, so I've kind of come at it from experiencing it. And then as I've dived back into scripture, it's put theological flesh onto that skeleton that uh, of, of what it means to, to follow Jesus. So yeah, compassion is, yeah, man, it's, yeah, incredible. If if you don't sponsor a Compassion kid, I know this sounds weird to, to say on your podcast, but... Uh, uh, up, to be, to be fair, it,
0: I'm saying it probably before this interview. That, that's <laughs> true. They're helping us put this and, season and on. And so
1: let me just reiterate what Andy's already <laughs> going to say. Um, <laughs> no, I love it. This is amazing. Because I agree. I mean, that's why I wanted to yeah, have I, them And I know your heart for them that. Them yeah. Ones. And I think it shapes our hearts, right? You know, I love how even as we sponsor, you kind of start off doing it because you feel like this is what you... What is good to do as someone who follows Jesus, right? Yeah. And then you find that it actually shapes your heart more and more to desire the things of Jesus. Uh, mm. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Like, that, you know, when when we used to sponsor through compassion, it used to say on the compassion packet, uh, you know, the kid's name, their birthday, and then it would say, be a blessing in my life. And And I really do believe anyone who sponsors a child through compassion, yes, you are being a legitimate blessing in their life, right? What I didn't expect was how much of a blessing the children we through compassion would be in our lives and in our family's life, just mm. shaping our hearts. There's that great quote, you know, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And, uh, I think you, that takes some work. Um, you can't just assume what breaks the heart of God on one level, you know, mm. you actually have to put yourself in its way. And, uh, and compassion is one small way that we can do that. So, yeah, man, I love it. You know, the most frustrating thing for me, Andy, is that I, I speak about compassion. And my goal is that 100% of the people in front of me sponsor children through compassion. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, the best response I get is usually around 10%. So I've got a long way to go, right? <laughs> uh, but it is one of those things. I really, I, I wonder if more of us, you know, had a compassion child on the refrigerator I just, I wonder what the the American church, the Australian church would look like, mm. what difference we might start to see, you know, in what we care about and how we think about others. And, you know, yeah, I, I find that stuff intriguing. So every time I meet someone who's sponsoring at the table at the end of a show, I think to myself, I'm so excited for that child. I'm so excited for that sponsor mm. because this is not some neutral act. This is not just $38 that you don't see. Disappearing off your credit card, uh, there is a good chance God might actually use this to, to shape you and form you into the likeness of Christ. Wow, that's amazing.
0: That's pretty awesome. So amazing. Anyway, but when you, you you talked about when you were twenty, you know twenty two, yep. you're playing music. So that, you know girls are going to come around. <laughs> you know, you, you know the reason yep. we all start playing. Yeah. And and now you're coming at your work after years of grief and mm. loss mm. and mm. also this. New young family that is incredibly vibrant. Yes, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's one word. I like that word. I'm going to start using that word instead. Yeah, uh, but all you, all the work that you've that you do here at the art house and with fostering community and uh, and people are probably gleaning from your conversation. You're 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 quite the the theologian in just your thought and uh, the amount of study that you that you've done and and, and so I imagine. You, you're not coming at music the same way now that you were when you started. So why do you want to keep making music? Yeah. And and what are you putting into it? And what are you hoping that people are getting out of it?
1: Yeah. Uh, I think I want to keep on making music because I don't know how to stop. And I think I wish I knew. I think I wish that. Do you? Well, yeah. Yeah, some days I do. I get that. Yeah. There's some days where... um, the urge to have to create, or you know, you're a, you're a guitar, you're a much better guitar player than I'll ever That's be. Nuts. But uh, I, you know, the days that I don't play my guitar, I really feel it. There's something very important and powerful about um, what that instrument has done to just help, you know, give mm-hmm. me release, give me freedom in that moment. And so, and I think I write out of um, that necessity that I started to feel. I think that has never gone away a real deep desire to say something of value and I think that the more that I read and the more I study um, the less I'm writing songs that I think say what I want them to say and that Mm. frustration I think is driving me at the moment Um, what do you uh, mean can you unpack that a little bit uh, I think I'm I think I want to write I want to write the perfect song and I and I don't think I mean the perfect movement of chords or melody or even rhythm you know I I think, I mean, the kind of song where when someone listens to me, they go, You've captured all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is this not the most absurd thing to say out loud? But I think that's the drive. Yeah. You no, know, like, uh, it is I the I mean, drive. you know, and, you know, one of the reasons I, I love your songs is that, that you do that. You know, what I mean, like you capture things for me when I listen to them. I go, I go, you know, the highest compliment I ever pay, which is, I'll, I wanted to write that song.
0: Mm, yeah. You
1: know? I, And so I feel that, you know, um, and I, and I want to write, I want to write that song for myself that I look back and go, oh, I wanted to write that song. And I did. (laughs) That sounds weird. (laughs) Boy. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that's what's, what's motivating me at the moment. Um, and writing songs that matter, you know, that don't just necessarily entertain people, which is ironic because my new single is very much about entertaining people, but I'm hoping that it leads (laughs) into these songs that will actually speak. You know, I have a song that I, I wrote um, uh, with Jeff Pardo in town, who who, mm-hmm. um, who you know well. And it was shortly after I, I got very sick and uh, I wrote a song called You Are Good. And we wrote a song together, this You Are Good song, that I realized is me saying, this is what I want my heart to believe. I'm not sure if I believe it right now, but I want to believe it. Very much that, the same as a century, you know, I believe help my unbelief. Yeah. You know? And I think that- that every every christian i think lives their life somewhere on that spectrum i believe help my own belief somewhere mm-hmm. you're on there i think these new songs that i'm writing are songs that i'm preaching the gospel to my own heart i want it to be true i yeah. want to believe it and if it inadvertently that might come uh, at someone else in their journey right now if it coincides with them and helps them and encourages them and and maybe provide some kind of wisdom in that moment for their life, that'd be amazing, you know? And I felt that. I've performed this song, You Are Good, uh, out with Michael uh, for about a year before I'd even recorded it or anything, which is always the way I do things. It's so backward to be an artist, to share a song that resonates with people and they can't actually get the song. Uh, that That's how I do my work these days. Um, but watching people resonate with that song, and it was written from a very very personal place I don't know I was reminded again yeah of why I make music and what what I hope it might be used for if yeah God, if God chooses to use it you know
0: you said you wrote the song in the midst of some sickness yeah would you tell us a little bit about that yeah sure
1: I, I hope that our time together doesn't sound too much like And then this bad thing happened and then this bad thing. Because sometimes I must admit, there are a lot of podcasts that are all all about how all the great things in people's lives. Yeah.
0: And I listen to those and I go, I don't, my life has (laughs) never felt like that.
1: Yeah. My life definitely doesn't feel like that. A few years ago, three years ago, I got very sick in Australia and, um, in the process of having a gallbladder removed, they discovered that I have a, a, very rare illness. Uh, one in 10,000 people have it. It's called primary sclerosing cholangitis, which is a mouthful. That is a mouthful. We call it PSC for short, uh, if you're in the, if you're in the game, uh, which I am. Um, and so, uh, basically my liver doesn't regenerate. It's not regenerating. And so at some point, uh, I mean, the good outcome would be if I need a liver transplant and I get one, um, I've got high risks of cancer and a whole bunch of other osteoporosis and all these other great things that I never thought I would be uh, having to deal with in my life. And at the moment, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I don't, I get flare ups every now and again, um, where I, I basically for 24 hours, I shut down. Uh, I get very, very high fevers and uh, I get a lot of pain. Um, but I go on antibiotics and after about 24 hours, I'm kind of function again as a normal human being. And, uh, and that happens about once a year these days, which is I'm really thankful for. That's a really good amount of time. But it's just constant monitoring It's constantly on my mind, to be honest, Mm because I I really have a young family. We've we've kind of mentioned them. I have a six-year-old, a three-and-a-half-year-old, and a a one-year-old who I adore. And uh, I would really love to see them grow up. And it's a difficult thing, isn't it, to hand your life over to the Lord, and he owns it already. So it's not like you're giving him something that he doesn't already have. Um, But not knowing what that means and desperately wanting uh, to be able to see them grow up and this illness being... Something that doesn't give any guarantees in that direction. And so yeah, I think you know, even as I write songs and even as I do the work in the art house, and to be honest, I joked about it, you know, not releasing the song even though I was singing it so no one could buy it or whatever, you know. Uh this this illness has really made me uh if I'm not careful I can almost just not care. Uh because everything feels Uh, I feel like I see through things quicker than I ever have before, Mm. uh, because of it. Um, and I do think about it every day, probably every night. Yeah. It's just become a part of, part of my journey now, you know, uh, every now and again, I'll have a day when I don't think about it and I'll realize, you know, the day after I'll be like, wow, that was amazing. What a great day. Mm. I didn't think about it at all, you know? Um, but that's, that's pretty rare. But I do think it allows me to resonate with people and certain things. So I, I think it's probably made me a little bit more courageous as well in what I believe about the gospel and in sharing that and wanting that to be important. So I think that's a positive thing. I probably, though, have questioned God or at least question that I believe help my unbelief kind of movement. That's mm-hmm. That's been much more... Uh, <laughs> I wish I could say that I was one of those super Christian people who could say, I just always live with the needle on belief, you know, but that needle, man, it flickers like, you know, you know, a broken, you know, gas, gas monitor or whatever in a car, you know, it just like kind of flickers back and forward. Yeah. And, um, and I don't know, maybe that, that will change. Um, but yeah, that's been a massive part of my journey and yeah. a massive part of the art that I'm creating at the moment, to be honest, is, yeah, is, uh, when I ask, does this matter? I really mean, does this matter? Uh, because I don't really want to waste my time doing things that don't matter. And uh, I oscillate between trying to do good work, and we've spoken about whether it's writing or um, other, other material, whatever, to try and do good work. Or if it's taking my family, cutting my losses, and living on a beach somewhere in Australia, you know, mm. and just spending time with my family. I don't, I don't know what the answer is in that one. Um, I don't suspect the Lord is going to give me like a really clear answer on that, but yeah, it's stuff that I think about an awful lot these days. Yeah. And I really wish I didn't have to on one level, so. Oh, um, mm. sure. I mean, who, yeah. who
0: wants yeah. to have to? <laughs> Not many people. <laughs> <laughs> you came to Nashville the first time in seek of kind of mentorship mm. and guidance. hmm And even through this last season with health, like what does that look like for you now? When you're now probably in a place where you're still wanting that and also providing that for others.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I mentioned to you a little while ago how, um, because I know we talk a a little bit about the importance of mentoring or that shift uh, from being mentored into realizing you're mentoring. Uh, There was a moment a few months ago where I realized that I was the same age as Charlie Peacock was 20 years ago when I sat down with him and said guide me you know Dude I had a conversation this morning yep. in this room
0: with a like a a kid who's yeah. probably 20 <laughs> and I was like and I yep. said something to him that Charlie had said to me when yeah. Charlie was probably my age Dude. and I was I was like wow that Dude. just happened Yeah I, do you And mer- I, do you remember I, what you said Yeah you say? it was the vitamin and a twinkie line Oh you, you ever hear that one No tell me that one Yeah I'd love to hear it, it. Was, We were just talking about you know Christian radio is stupid, blah, blah, blah. You know, yeah, like yeah. A, and I'm saying like, like you don't have to like it. You don't have to love all of this. It's Like your job or you want to eat the vitamin, you got to put the vitamin in a Twinkie. Dude, that is a great line. And I was like, okay. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> I don't totally know what that means all the time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's been, it's, yeah. It's good insight. That,
1: that is. That's but yeah. Great but I was yep. like, here I am in that same experience. And you're giving you. that, Sitting yep. here in that dude's old house. Yep. yep. It, Saying that yeah, man. the one that, the one that he said to me, um, uh, when, when I sat down with him, he said to me, you have to define success for yourself because if you let anyone else do it, it will destroy you. Oh, and, uh, i remember thinking, good. wow. And it took me a number of years to realize what that meant, but I've used that one for so I'm many gonna, people. I'm going to borrow that yeah. one straight up. It's a good one. you In it's this, so I mean, true. in Nashville, it's a really great one. It's a healthy one. Um, Anywhere, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, sorry. sorry, sorry. No, 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 I, no. I, the vitamin in the Twinkie. Yeah, I was just thinking. about I was thinking about how much I don't enjoy Twinkies. Isn't that funny? <laughs> no, like yeah, meant that, to, but I really don't.
0: Maybe that was a very late '90s reference. Yeah, maybe it was. Think I, I think that. our culture has
1: shifted away from the Twinkie. It's like a vitamin A in a vegan bun or something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. Um, yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I think I still desire mentorship. I I really want people older and wiser than me around me. It's probably why I read a lot is because when I'm reading, I'm reading from people who are just so much smarter and wiser and further along the road. And um, yeah, I, I, I wonder if that's one of the things that compels me to want to have authors around me so much. But I have felt a shift. It was it was a sh- subtle shift in the last, last two years to realize that um, you have a responsibility. And, and I say this for both of us, that when you've experienced as much as we've experienced the kind of people that we get to spend time with kind of people that have invested and spoken into our lives, the churches, we've been a part of, um, the things that we've seen around the world and around America in particular, uh, you kind of have a responsibility. You kind of don't get to, I think you don't get to sit in a room and say, it's all about me. Hmm. It's all about my personal growth. At some point, uh, I think the gospel the gospel is always calling us out of ourselves toward others, always. Very rarely do I think that its primary purpose is to actually push us in in. I think its primary purpose is push us out. Um, and I think when it comes to mentoring, especially especially in a town like Nashville, um, I think it's really important. I think rather than I've, I've worked out instead of trying to make that happen, is to really pray for a sensitivity to know when it's happening.
0: Man, I love that you're in a space uh, where you get to actually actively open your home and your life, uh, your family's lives, to uh, to the work of people being shaped by the gospel. Um, and that's huge. And you've, you've opened your home. I work in your home. <laughs> you let Which, me man. walk in <laughs> and just make noise in your house. Yeah. Granted, I'm down
1: the hall. Yeah. But... Well, thank you, man. I mean, I, you know, I want to say this again, that it is, it is such a joy uh, to have you here. And uh, I know that out of everyone that you've re- recorded in on your podcast, um, I'm the only person that can say, thanks so much for being in our home all the time. We're really, really grateful. And, and in all seriousness, we're so grateful for the work that you do and the way that it's encouraging and shaping other people's lives, whether it's through the podcast or through your work, um, shaping young artists now who are creating music for the church and, and your own music, which has meant so much to us as well. So, yeah, we, we feel very privileged to, you know, be a, be a part of the team that is the art house. You know, we hold loosely to it, um, but we're also very protective of it as well. And we've been so thankful to have you as a part of it. You know, it really means a lot to us. So keeping, and you're a lovely family as well. Oh. We just love love having you around. So feels better when you're here than when you're not. So you stay here. Unreal. And, uh,
0: <laughs> it's one of the joys of my life, getting to call this place home. Well, so, thank you. Ours too. Ours too, man. All right, thank you for your time, man. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. Is that guy brilliant or what? To find more info about Nathan or hear his music, uh, you can go to NathanTasker.com, just like it sounds, T-A-S-K-E-R. You can find his new song, Young, there, uh, as well as his other music and uh, pictures of his family and uh, musings and pictures of a lot of the amazing acoustic guitars that he has laying all around the studio. Uh, So many wonderful, wonderful guitars. It has been such a gift to get to know he and his family better this year, and uh, I hope you got as much out of that conversation as I did. Also, clearly, another guy who loves the work of Compassion. I can't say it enough. This really matters. Please go visit Compassion.com slash The Pivot. It is so good and so important. I know we all find ourselves thinking, why did I just spend that money? Why did I just do that? I don't know anyone who has ever looked at the $38 coming out of their bank account and questioned whether or not that was a good thing to do. Compassion.com slash The Pivot. Go check that out. We'll be back with another amazing episode next week. I'm really, really, really excited about this one and a little nervous for the interview in a couple days. I hope it goes well. Um, It's going to be really fun. So check back next week for that one. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you're having a great summer. We'll see you next week. Now go do something awesome.